From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is out on assignment. I'm your host, Marjorie Sensor. Mary Davy is NASA's new Deputy Associate Administrator of Mission Support Transformation. She's leaving her post at the General Services Administration, where she has been overseeing an office focused on HR shared services. FCW reports Davy has spent 30 years at GSA. The U.S. Merit System Protection Board blames the, quote, rigid pay system for the Federal Cyber Reskilling Academy's lack of results. The board says mid-career employees who trained at the academy would have had to take a pay cut if they switched to a cybersecurity job. FedScoop reports a board official says moving to a rank-in-person system rather than the current rank-in-position system could give agencies more flexibility. The Army's Enterprise Cloud Management Office should be fully operational by the end of March. Paul Puckett III is the new director of the cloud office. FCW reports Puckett plans to prioritize talent. Space Development Agency will become part of the Space Force in 2022. Meanwhile, the Space Force has just over a week to get an organizational plan to Congress. Caitlin Johnson is Associate Director of the Aerospace Security Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Um, is this what you expected for uh, the organization of the Space Force in connection with SDA? Yes, it is. I think the, having the SDA as a separate organization um, under RD&E, it, it just didn't ever make sense, um, especially with the new the new service being stood up. So I think having it rolled under the Space Force by 2022 um, is is a good move. Now, how it gets rolled under, where it goes once it's uh, once it's there, is uh, kind of up for debate. But. And what about then and now? Obviously, um, SDA has some pretty ambitious goals. What are you expecting yeah. from them? So they've publicly re uh, stated recently that they plan to launch um, a dozen or more satellites by 2022, um, testing their their missile tracking layer idea and concept. Um, they seem, you know, pretty ambitious with this deadline. But that was what the whole organization was predicated on, was having ambitious deadlines, using existing technologies or technologies that were already under development and repurposing them so that they could move faster. And this seems like an opportunity um, for industry as well, right, to have um, you know, a fast-moving organization. Are you seeing anything on that side of it in terms of movement or positioning? Um, a, a bit. I think industry is really capitalizing on the fact that it's using already existing technology and they're not having to develop anything new, um, just repurpose what they've got and, and sell it again to the government maybe. Uh, they, SDA has had some, some good feedback from industry. They've put out a request for kind of ideas of how to build this missile layer um, and I expect they'll get pretty good responses. And what about this um, organizational chart we're expecting? Uh, what needs to happen there? Obviously there's a very quick timeline there as well. Yeah, they've been moving very fast. They've been working on the organizational chart actually possibly before the Space Force was officially stood up. Um, the Air Force has been very dedicated towards uh, getting this right or at least putting a good team behind it to, to work effectively. Uh, I know the team general, uh, Raymond, the chief space officer, he had a meeting with President Trump last week um, about the organization, but also about uniforms and basing ideas. Um, and all that we've heard is that that went very well. So I expect the organization's already done. What has the reaction of Congress been so far to the announcements they've made? Um, are they open to the way this is going? I think so. I think, uh, you know, the Space Force has been 
keeping things kind of under lock. I don't think they want a lot of public comments before they're finished and, and officially released to Congress. Um, but so far, con uh, congressional uh, feedback has been pretty positive. I think everyone's waiting to see how this is structured, um, how they're keeping it under budget, um, and all, all those key aspects that the Congress put into the NDAA, seeing that those have been carried out precisely. And, and we're seeing kind of this, uh, this stream of information, or maybe a trickle of information yeah. kind of coming out. What else do you, do you think you need to know? What kind of information are you looking for to come out in the next few months from, from Space Force? Sure. Um, well, besides the, uh, the flashy uniforms that were just released, um, we are, we're really focused on, on how they're going to make sure that this, the organizational structure is lean. They have much less people than any of the other services. Um, the top line right now is supposed to be 16,000 people. Currently, there's only one person in the Space Force, and that's General Raymond. So I expect that to grow significantly. Um, but making sure that that organization supports the changes that the Space Force was created to fix. So primarily acquisition, cultural, new ways of training and equipping. Um, and, and we see some of that has been built out in the NDAA, and it's possible that Congress will add into it in the next NDAA if they feel like the Space Force needs more support there. Um, but seeing how they keep it lean, maybe less hierarchical, um, really focus on technology and, and skills. And we're expecting a, a budget rollout next month. What will you be watching in there as it pertains to SDA or the Space Force? So SDA in the last budget was um, not allocated so much by Congress than it, it was hoping, but neither was the Space Force. And I think Congress is watching both organizations, trying to keep them um, you know, from increasing the, the top line. In fact, the, um, the services might be looking at a decrease or having to make some hard cuts. And um, to do so with this new service is, is definitely adding a little complexity than normal. Um, this past year, they were allocated $40 million to stand up the Space Force. So I expect that to increase, especially with the increase in personnel. A lot of the funding will come from that as well. So It, it sounds like even if the president's budget, though, um, significantly increases uh, you know, the proposed budget for the Space Force, Congress may not like that. We may see some changes on uh, as they're trying to kind of keep it lean, right? Is yes, that fair? Yes, exactly. Um, one of the, the main tenets that Congress took with developing the Space Force in the NDA was to keep it um, a low budget or budget neutral, just not increasing the top line, not spending too much, um, really forcing the, the Space Force to, to make hard choices and really think about how they best spend the money that they do have. So I expect that to continue. And, and a lot of what's coming out of the Space, um, going into the Space Force so far is coming out of the Air Force, right? Could this have any impact on, on parts of the Air Force's budget? Sure, you would expect if, if part of the budget is coming from the Air Force and going into the Space Force that the Air Force's budget top line will come down. Um, and I think that's reasonable to expect as they are um, letting go of, of certain bases or certain personnel acquisition process, uh, structures and, and satellites and their operations. So I think you'll see a little increase and a little decrease at the same time. Thank you so much, Caitlin Johnson. Up next, a look at leadership at the Defense Department. Straight ahead on Government Matters, DOD is weighing axing a job it just created. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
The Defense Department will examine eliminating the chief management officer role, even as Lisa Hirschman was just confirmed to the job. Here to give us a look at the future of this position, Jerry McGinn is the executive director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. Thanks so much for being here, Jerry. Great to be here. So Congress has asked for um, two studies of this mm -hmm. role. Give us a little bit of a, an indication of what's going on here. Well, this is, as you well know, Marjorie, it's a long-running effort uh, to bring business practices into the department. You know, they've been doing this for almost two decades uh, under the Business Transformation Agency first, and then the Deputy Chief Management Officer, and now the Chief Management Officer organization. And the the intent of this is un, is unassailable in terms of its, its rationale. You want to have the best commercial business practices in the Department of Defense, but it's just the, the reality of, of, of this theory of reading the reality of the business of how the uh, the Pentagon works has just really struggled and I think that that's part of what's behind this and you have a new piece out on mm -hmm. this um, what's the recommendation that you make for the for the future of this role well I, I think the uh, again the intent of, 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 of this is the right intent but I don't think an organizational or even a legislative uh, authority solution is the right approach the right approach I believe is to empower the leaders of the department because Although DOD is not a business, you've got really strong line organizations called the Army, the Air Force, the Navy, and the Marine Corps. And then you, you have these fourth estate organizations, uh, such as the undersecretaries and defense agencies. And these are strong organizations. Uh, set reform goals for them. Put, put the onus on them to set reform goals and then hold them accountable. So those two things. Uh, and I think that approach... Um, done through the Deputy Secretary of Defense or, and the Secretary, as opposed to a separate organization, the Chief Management Officer, no matter how kind of in the line of or, um, authority in the department, I think is the right, right approach. What do you think these studies will, will find as they examine this role? Do you think that they'll find um, you know, that, that it wasn't set up right or that what you're saying sort of it sounds like that there's maybe a, an organizational construct that just won't work? Yeah, I, I think the, what, they'll, what they'll find is that, you know, the, the, the Pentagon works in, um, it's, a, it's a bureaucracy. It's, and so it works in organizational uh, kind of, uh, you know, um, silos. It, then they make budgetary decisions through the budgetary process. And so these organizations go against each other or come, against, come in whatever kind of venue. And so you have these strong organizations with, you know, uh, deeply um, uh, seated um, uh, civilians and senior executive service officials in the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, and in, in, in organizations like CAPE or, or, uh, other, or the Comptroller. And, and the, the chief management or, or, um, organization, uh, officer organization, has always struggled with that. Um, there aren't that many folks that come into the Department of Defense to do defense business processes, right? Those folks are at a consulting firm or in a company. And so the, um, they, they've always seemed to have struggled in the bureaucratic um, kind of battles within the Pentagon. Below, I mean, no matter what the level of the really top executives has been very strong, like Ms. Hirschman's tremendous, uh, tremendous experience. Um, so, you know, but so going in that, that reality has always kind of been the struggle. And I think we need to, the Congress, hopefully the studies will kind of uh, come to that same conclusion. The challenging thing it seems like about this role has been that Congress wants one thing, maybe the Pentagon wants another, and even within Congress there can be dis disagreement. Yeah. Um, you know, how do you think the Pentagon can kind of reconcile, 
you know, what Congress wants and, and what makes sense and maybe what the services want. You've got a lot of competing interests. Yeah, no, that's a very, that's a very good point. And I, I think all the actors are, are I think, are had the same goal. It's just the, the means kind of is where we get it. And I think what you have to have is sort of a balance where you've got where the department, um, you know, can maybe set business reform goals. And you see this in actually Secretary Esper's uh, July, January 6th memo, I believe, that a sense of set the defense reform priorities. He said, CMO, you're in charge of the fourth estate, the defense-wide functions, uh, and the services, I want you to come to me with an aggressive reform plan. Right? And I think that's the, the, the right, start of the right approach. And then you have to bring in Congress to that and you know, provide them with a regular uh, kind of, um, of um, uh, feedback on the progress of these efforts so they can perform their oversight function. And, and you mentioned that memo. I, I thought that was kind of interesting that as we're having this, um, this set of studies that, that really is a fight to save this job, um, Secretary Esper is giving the CMO role a, a big, um, you know, some importance in this review. Is that a mixed signal that, or, or you think these are all kind of reconcilable? I, I think it's reconcilable because I think if, uh, at the end of the day, if, if you take uh, the, the CMO function, and you fold it under the Deputy Secretary of Defense and um, have the Deputy, Deputy Secretary be the CMO, but have that function and power to focus on defense-wide programs, right, which the CMO is currently uh, doing, have the, and, but also hold the services accountable through a, you know, a process. So you need a much smaller CMO organization, and, and it's, it's, it's the deputies. It's not you know, its own silo that has to compete uh, for attention, so that, so that way. One of the other points um, you make in your piece is about sort of comparing DOD to a business. Yeah. A lot of people make that comparison, want it to be more efficient like a business, but you also point out that there are some limitations on its yeah. ability to be a business. Can you talk a little bit about where those are? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the uh, the department's, uh, you know, uh, role is to protect our national defense. So it, it's never, it's not a profit and loss organization. Um, it's about tr organize, for the services to organize, train, and equip forces to um, to protect the nation. So I, I think in that sense, it's a, it's a line organization, much like a business. The, uh, the outcomes are different. They're not profit and loss. So, so, I, think it, um, so I think you have to be careful on, on how much you characterize it. But I, uh, but I think um, there's sort of natural way, there are natural organizations that we can empower um, with the right kind of in, uh, um, priorities set in organizations within them to uh, achieve those business goals. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Okay. Again. All right. Up next, keeping data secure across government and for individuals. Straight ahead on Government Matters, best practices for privacy. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Federal Data Strategy's 2020 Action Plan calls for a data protection toolkit by the end of this year. Data security and personal privacy is also one of the grand challenges for public administration identified by NAPA. Terry Girton is President and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Jason Breifel is Executive Director of the Senior Executives Association. Thanks for being here. Great. What is the federal government doing to prioritize data privacy, Terry? Well, I think you see in the federal data strategy plan the principles around data strategy. And it's a really important step because critical to all of that is building and sustaining public trust. right? And so you know, we as people tend to make a bargain with our retail providers where we trade privacy for convenience. But we don't seem to be willing to make that same bargain with the government. 
so that the government could use data to make public services more convenient. So I think the principles that are inside that federal data strategy are all about building and sustaining public trust. And so the concepts around ethical governance are really important to, to help people know that the government promises to be a good steward of that kind of data. It's an important do you, step. Do you view that as, a, as an important change from the past? Well, I, I don't know that it's so much of a change as it is a public statement of intent. And so, you know, the government, I think, has always wanted to be good stewards of, of public data, but now we're saying it out loud um, and trying to be more transparent about what people know about how the government collects and uses and stores and protects their data. So being public and transparent about it is really key. And Jason, how do you see um, that public statement kind of playing out in individual agencies? What steps are, are agencies thinking about or taking? Well, the strategy lays out a host of actions that are taking place at different levels of government, you know, led by OMB in many senses, led by other agencies in different domains. You know, there's geospatial pieces, there's elements around ethics, um, building of data governance bodies, which is required by the Evidence Act with chief data officers. You know, I think what's interesting in the change between maybe past practices of individual parts of an agency collecting a piece of information and not necessarily thinking of how it's used in a broader context, and now using this overarching framework to think about how is the government writ large using this information appropriately but protecting it. So you, you can strike that right balance which addresses the public trust component that Terry talked about. It's really important in, in this, the action plan which has a whole host of steps that will be carrying out over 2020 lay important foundation for the government into the, uh, the rest of the 2020s. Are you seeing any difference in how individual agencies um, think about this? Are there some you think that are farther ahead or giving it more um, attention? Well, I think the, the, the action plan explicitly states that agencies are in different phases of maturity. And I think that's appropriate. Some agencies have been data rich and data heavy. Um, there mm -hmm. are significant laws related to privacy, use, uh, shareability or non-shareability between federal agencies or, or, or to taxpayers. Um, so those pieces are there. So now it's how do you take that through this new model and carry it forward? How can agencies develop learning agendas so they can better use that information internally but also share it with each other? How do we share those best practices? Um, this framework provides a, a, a nice way for those important steps um, to occur. And, and one of the things that SCA stressed in the comments that we put in um, on the, the draft of the federal data strategy was the importance of baseline uh, literacy uh, around these topics, both about data itself, but privacy, security, ethics. Every federal employee needs to know enough about these things so they just don't think that it's someone else's job. It's everyone's job to ensure that we're using taxpayer information uh, appropriately. And Terry Napa identified data privacy um, <coughs> as one of the, the grand challenges in public administration. Right. Why did you uh, name it that, and, and what do you think public administration can do on this issue? Well, I think we see both data security and individual privacy as issues for every level of government. As you see ransomware attacks on city government databases, right, as you see um, the, the California Protection Act and you see the GDPR in Europe. The issues around individual privacy, what people know, um, how they're prepared to take appropriate action, and how governments can act and use this kind of data in a responsible way is ac absolutely vital to delivering good government services you know, in the future. And so thinking about how we train the workforce, how we structure 
and invest in secure data systems, how we set up the rules and the laws and the regulatory framework around those to give citizens, again, that trust in their government so that their government can deliver effective public services is really crucial to helping government function well in the future. That seems like it coincides with what you were saying, Jason, about making it everybody's job. Um, are you seeing the government uh, address what your, your comments and think about training individual workers, maybe ones that we don't think of as, as having to deal with this issue? It's, it's certainly laid out as elements of the action plan. Um, there, there's a bunch of different bodies that are being set up at different levels throughout the federal government <clears throat> to address this. You know, like uh, at the agency level, through diverse chief uh, data governance boards, at the OMB level, um, and then there are specific and tangible actions and resources. I think importantly that are being provided: uh, the development of toolkits, mm -hmm. information sets. Um, Again, not everybody needs to know everything about this, but everyone needs to know something about it, and I think that's really important for addressing the public trust component. Just a minute ago, minute to go, Terry, the, the public trust piece that you mentioned, how do you know if that's succeeding? That seems like a pretty long-term um, goal. How can the government kind of gauge, are we making progress in, in um, gaining public trust about data privacy? Well, I think um, you know the census will be a great test, and the Census Bureau's been on the forefront of data security and privacy, but if people are willing to share that information, um, it will tell us that there's an opening to expand that. Um, and, and Jason's exactly right, making sure all of our government employees are sensitized to the value of data and protecting it and their responsibilities with that. And this uh, feature of conscious design that's in the principles, to think carefully about the data that you think you want, compare it to what you already have, and then be very transparent about how you're going to collect that and protect it is a really important step forward. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. Thanks Thank for having you. us. If you've missed the show or are on the go, you can stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Government Matters is now available as an audio podcast. You can subscribe to our daily program on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, and TuneIn, or ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor.